Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Thanks for that. Well, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight, we've got my panel, the writer and broadcaster, Dominique Samuels, and Jeevan Sander, who's an economist at King's College London. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now, don't you? It's not just about us three. It's about you at home as well. I want to know what's on your mind tonight and specifically, what do you think about the topics we are going to get into? Uh, Labour, they've got an energy plan. Do you agree with it? Do you like it? Do you think it's even relevant? Uh, you tell me. I also want to talk to you about a year on from Afghanistan. Should the UK be sending more money? And over 20,000 people across the channel. I mean, goodness gracious me. Uh, we go around in circles on this all the time. Let's face it, no one really seems to be doing anything about it. I mean, now it's a joke, isn't it? People are advertising on TikTok. I mean, I have to laugh. It is that absurd, uh, if only it wasn't, of course. So, serious, get in touch with me. Let me know all your thoughts on those topics. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email. You can tweet me at gbnews or at Michelle Jubes. Uh, let's get stuck into our top story there tonight. Uh, not bad being an MP at the moment. You get your summer off, don't you? But uh, Keir Starmer, he's back from his holiday. He's got a plan. Um, he's got an energy price cap. That's what he wants to be frozen, he reckons. Uh, he could save the average household a thousand pounds. Got to say, this is quite a big uh, intervention by Sir Keir Starmer, and many are saying that it's put pressure on Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak to say what they would do. I mean, got to say, they've been saying what they would do, but many people are saying it's not enough. So, before we get into it, then let's have a little reminder as to what it is that Labour are proposing. The off-gen price cap, which is currently £1,971, of course, is expected to rise again in October and then again in January, but under Labour's plan it will be frozen until the end of next March. This is expected to cost £29 billion and this money would be given to energy firms by the government. Labour would be ditching the £400 discount that's been given to all the households between October and March, and this would be funding about half the cost of the plan. Labour also would backdate the windfall tax, which took effect in May, back to January. Hmm, what do you think to that? Um, many of you are already getting in touch saying, what's it got to do with them? They're not in power, so it's all irrelevant. But, I mean, give them their due. They've got to be kind of challenging the government on some of this, trying to set some uh, direction, put some pressure on, and many Tory voters, actually, have come out in support of this plan. So... Credit where it's due, because people do criticise the opposition for not actually being that effective in opposition. And today, they're trying. Jeevan Sander, where do you stand? Well, yeah, I think it's absolutely the right thing for them to do. Their job is not just to oppose the government, but now set out what they would do in power. And look, this energy bill rise we're about to see, it's more than a crisis, it'll be catastrophic. We're facing an increased energy bill over £2,000. That's going to send middle-class families to the wall, let alone those at the bottom who face destitution and starvation. It is, of course, a fully costed plan. It will get them through this very difficult winter. And as you said, three-quarters of the public and three-quarters of Conservative voters support it. So it's very clear the public is behind this. And once again, we're now waiting for the Conservative Party to catch up. 
But the public's going to be behind anything which reduces their bill. It doesn't necessarily make it the right policy, does it? I was reading your blog uh, earlier on. I found it quite interesting. You were saying um, that this potentially could be used as a lever. What do you call it? A fiscal price cap? Did I make my mm -hmm. notes? Yes. Uh, you were saying that it actually might be used as a lever to try and get a handle on inflation. Can you explain that to my viewers that are not uh, as up there with the economics as you? Yes, of course. So, look, what this... What will happen is if the Labour Party was to fix the energy price cap as it is now, it would lower inflation by about four percentage points because of that course, that price won't rise over the winter. And when that happens, it also means that inflation won't get out of control. We will end up in what's called a wage price spiral, which is where people don't know how much price they're going to increase. So they keep ending up or asking for higher wages. That leads to higher price rises and it keeps going on and on and on. And of course, people then can't really interact in the economy. They don't know what prices to set. The price signals get very messed up and then economic growth begins to fall. That's what we really saw in the 1970s. Now, it's not clear if we are there yet, but what it is clear is if you do directly reduce inflation, you're minimising that risk of that happening. You're minimising the chance of inflation becoming embedded in the economy. We can get a temporary feature and then get through to next year. But one of the challenges for me um, with this, because this price cap, the reason it keeps going up and up and up, many people are saying, well, if it's a cap, why does it keep moving? Mm because it's reflecting the cost of the wholesale gas. It's that that goes up and up and up, and that is then passed on. If you fix this, aren't you worried that you might uh, push more supplies into going under, like what we saw previously? So the, the supplies will still get the price in between the difference of what the current price cap is and what the wholesale price would be, so they shouldn't go more bust, if you like. They should stay alive and afloat. And the real thing is, two things, really, is, yes, put inflation down, yes, ensure that families get through this winter, but also buyers a year. So we think energy prices might begin to fall anyway, but of course that's very unclear. But also time is to ensure that bills can go down for households as well. We can retrofit homes, we can insulate homes. You know, that's something that can get our bills down. And regardless of where you stand this debate, I think we could all agree lower energy bills are better for everybody. Yeah, of course. And that's the point I was trying to make, Dominique. Um, when we say, oh yeah, loads of the Tory voters and the people at large are backing this plan, well, of course they are. You know, people are going to back anything, sorry, that saves the money. Why wouldn't they? So I'm not sure if it's necessarily that this plan is the answer or if people are just desperate for anything. Yeah, I completely understand that. And look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm some expert in economics. But what I do understand is politically the Conservatives are in a very difficult stance at the moment because neither Rishi Sunak nor Liz Truss seem to be putting forward a plan that sounds radical enough to actually offset the rises that we're going to see. Uh, from January, bills are projected to hit £4,200. That is simply unsustainable, and neither of their plans so much as covers that. It barely covers it. People want a solution, and at the moment, we've got a solution that's being presented by Labour that actually will see people paying less for their energy bills. And to be honest, I think it does make sense. It, I think it might buy us some time to actually get inflation under control. And the fact that some Tories actually back this, uh, for example, even Esther McVeigh has said that this does sound like the most sensible option and actually an alternative that will address the problem rather than tinkering around, which I'm sorry is what Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak is doing. You know, I've not heard a better alternative, so... See, Jeevan, I'm a business person at heart, and I've got to say, one of the things that worries me, because I don't want anyone to struggle mm -hmm. with their energy bills, I really don't, um, but when it comes to kind of interfering in the market, I'm starting to get slightly nervous because uh, everyone talks now about uh, the situation in Russia and Ukraine, and that's what's driving prices up. 
But let's be absolutely clear that lots of this started in terms of energy increases because of governments manipulating the economy to such a point where they shut it down. It was that interference when we started then opening up, that supply demand kicked in and that led to the initial uh, surges that we saw in gas. So that makes me worried about interventions, point one. Mm. Point two, I sit there and I think fixing energy uh, cap, fine. What about when that ends. What do we do then? Because this war in Ukraine, everyone knows about it because it's been talked about since February, but February was an escalation into a conflict that's been ongoing since 2014. So I'm not so sure that this is going to be ending anytime soon. And then my last point as a business person is talking about these kind of uh, windfall taxes and all the rest of it, and now we're going to kind of backdate it. It feels to me that you're almost sticking, doing this, I mean, you can't see what I'm doing, actually, if you're on the radio, I've just realised that, but uh, just sticking your finger in the air and going, right, this is my policy today, and guess what, everyone? I'm going to backdate it as well. Surely you're going to de-incentivise uh, investment in... I don't know, renewables and whatever else. So on the first point of interventions, I mean, look, we already know how high yeah, energy prices... I feel better prices... for getting all off my chest, <laughs> I can tell you. Go on, sorry. In the first of interventions, like, in terms of interfering with energy prices, we've already been cutting back on our heating bills. We've already felt it last winter. We know that 40% of us are already struggling to heating their homes. So the pricing in that sense won't do a huge amount. We know people are already reducing it as much as they possibly can. What we're trying to do is to stop destitution over the next year. I would agree, by the way, in terms of what happens over the next year, and it is important the government, if they do implement this, or if it was a Labour Party, they spent that year trying to ensure that bills would be lower, irrespective of where the gas price ends up, not just hitting and hoping, as it were, to see to see where it is. And I think it can't just be this policy because there are other wider issues. For example, the fact that we're not producing gas uh, domestically. Last year, we imported more than we actually produced. That's no, a we do, problem. we do, we do create gas uh, domestically, but then we have to send a lot of that overseas. We, you're quite right that we import more now than what we create here. Always, but one of the challenges, and this is why a lot of these politicians make me laugh, all of them, quite frankly, because you've got Ed Davy coming out talking about price caps. Well, actually, he contributed to a lot of the problems back in I think it's 2013 when he was messing around in terms of the storage facilities. He wouldn't subsidise storage facilities, so we don't have a lot of storage now for things like gas. You've got Labour now coming out today with all of these kind of plans when actually they'd have had their way. We would have been locked down for an awful lot longer, so we probably would have found ourselves in even more conundrums uh, when it comes to the supply, the demand side of things. So I've had enough of all of them, which I realise is not very helpful mm. because it doesn't actually answer the problem as to what we're going to do with our energy. Uh, I interrupted you, Dominique. What was you saying? Yeah, just the wider problems in terms of making sure that we're self-sufficient instead of sort of being victim to uh, global price shocks, which is obviously what we're seeing right now. And also, you will probably won't agree with this, Jubin, but I think about how much we've actually um, used taxpayers' money to subsidise renewable energy. Um, about 265 million um, in 2021 is the most recent figure. And despite this, despite, yes, renewable energy is at its lowest it's ever been, the consumer is actually not seeing the benefit of that. And I think a lot of people are going to be asking questions. Why is taxpayers' money going to, towards renewables for these companies? Because that's the sort of intervention that we've seen. Yet, despite the fact renewables are the lowest have ever been, why is the consumer not seeing that back in terms of their energy bills? I think even with water, with energy too, 
there's a gross incompetence that is widespread and unfortunately the poorest are paying the price. Obviously part of the reason why is because, you know, since 2010 there were cuts, if you like, in spending on renewables. So had Cameron kept it up, our bills would have been about 150 to 200 pounds lower today than they are given where our energy mix is. I would also say our lack of, I would say, nuclear power as well has been a real problem for us. And like, I know that's not always comfortable for those of us who sit on like the left, if you like, of the spectrum, but it is true, certainly. Our renewables at this point in time can't be the answer to the entire grid. They have too many surges. Our batteries aren't yet good enough. And the final thing, to come back on the windfall tax, you know, usually, you know, like you said, Michelle, you've been a, a business woman before and that's your primary goal when you gain a profit usually it's because of innovation you know we use iPhones I understand why Apple make loads of money because they innovate because they work really hard but for those oil and gas companies today making billions more than they did last year and even British Gas and Centrica that's not because they've innovated or done something special no, it's, it's of like a strike of, they got kind of like a strike from heaven right they got kind of lucky in that sense so a tax on it now retrospectively wouldn't impact kind of investment decisions it's why we think windfall tax can be very very effective yeah but but I'll tell you for why I, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable mm. because uh, you're basically taxing external market conditions as opposed to like what you're saying internal innovation but then what about if you I mean I've got shares in BP I don't mind admitting that most people have by the way um, when you look at your pensions a lot of people if you've got a pension you'll see that it is invested in companies like BP and Shell and all the rest of it but actually, I remember when we were in lockdown and actually these companies, so many companies actually had to pretty much give away their oil because actually when you looked at the storage costs, it, it wasn't worth their while. So when the uh, countries, that it wasn't just this country, but when the world basically shut down, these, these companies really struggled. They made huge losses and no one then was stepping in and saying, oh, look, uh, market conditions mean that these people pretty much have to give away their oil. Let's all step in and help them. And also, I find it quite interesting that it's oil and gas companies that have been subjected to windfall tax. What about companies like, I don't know, delivery companies, food delivery companies, Amazon, things like that? They've all benefited hugely from everyone being locked in their house. What about pharmaceutical companies that have made absolute fortunes because of so-called uh, external factors? Why don't you want to windfall tax all of them and where do you draw the line? So here I suppose there's like a clear reason why, right? And I suppose in the longer term, oil and gas companies haven't done that badly. They can definitely take the hit. In terms of specifics around like Amazon, for example, I think we can see the innovation of where they've gotten to, but also we do have kind of reforms the corporation tax. And pharmaceutical companies, yeah, there are real questions about patents the amount that they are making, definitely. those should definitely be addressed. Like, I wouldn't say that, you know, this is a fair and functioning market or a competitive market. You know, as a general rule, I'm in favour of competition in markets. And like, yes, you're right, of course, people who kind of work and innovate and do well will make their profits, then also I want them to pay their taxes. So what's a fair tax then? When we're saying windfall tax and you were in favour of that for oil and gas companies, what's mm. a fair amount? Because they already pay increased corp tax. How much do you think they should be taxed? Well, the amount at the moment, which Labour has done as the, the nine billion seems fair you take away the no, 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 as a percentage as a percentage what percentage tax windfall tax do you reckon these companies should be paying so maybe at the moment they've got between 15 and 20 percent on top of the corporation tax that they are spending or are they already paying mm -hmm. yeah that would get in enough revenue and also kind of leave them as well let's not forget still being profitable and Rishi Sunak's is 25 percent isn't it
Yeah, I just think that ultimately, I just, and I know it's popular, and I know many of you at home will be shouting, saying, what's she on about? Tell her to shut up. No, I don't Because, think so. <laughs> or, 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 people shout horrendous, <laughs> people shout worse things at me on my TV set than uh, shut up, I can tell you. I can't read some of them out sometimes. Uh, but, yeah, I do, I just think you've got a fine line, really, because you do have to incentivise uh, organisations to keep innovating, mm -hmm. especially if everyone keeps banging on about this green agenda and expecting these companies to invest and invest invest and invest because there will be a point actually if you're a businessman or woman you're going to sit there and say hang on this particular territory the, the UK it's constantly changing its its lines with tax strategy so today I'm going to invest this goodness only knows what their tax strategy is going to be tomorrow and then when you start doing precedence for and we're going to retrospectively apply that to you it would make me uneasy if I was an investor but you tell me, what do you think? I know what you'll all think at home. You'll just be saying, I don't care, just as long as my bills uh, are reduced, quite frankly. I, just, ah, I think that should be the priority, to be honest. Every single penny that we can get, I think, should be spent on, on making people's lives easier because from where I'm standing, this is an issue that's been caused by governments and governments all over the world from shutting down the economy. But even before lockdown, energy prices were steadily rising. Um, money printing, these are all issues that I don't really feel as is the fault of the British people, the vast majority of the British people. I, I don't understand why we always have to pay the price, you know, to forsake companies that are making billions and billions and billions in profit in an industry that's not actually really that competitive anyway. If it was about competition, and I'm a capitalist, I'm all for it, then I would understand, but there's not much competition in, in the in the energy industry at all. They're just raking in profit. There's a difference between profit and profiteering, and you don't have to be a socialist and a Labour supporter to be able to understand that and to be able to see when things just clearly aren't fair. Uh, Bernard says, why can't the government just make a law to make the energy companies only charge cost prices with zero profit for 12 months, full stop? Why? I mean, if you're the owner of BP or whoever it is, you're not a charity. Why would you? Why should you uh, not make a profit? Because energy's a public... I'm not saying they shouldn't make a profit, but energy is a, is a public good, and I'd understand if they were just, you know, just Whoa, about... are you in favour of nationalisation? No, but uh, not necessarily. I don't think long-term that would be the correct strategy. But I'd understand if they were all just, just about breaking even. But we're talking about billions and billions and billions in profit that they didn't even expect themselves. This is unexpected profit. Now, taking a few And they billion... also had unexpected losses as well. Yeah, but think about it logically. They obviously knew once the economy opened back up again, they're not dumb. They knew they would, they would make that back tenfold. They took the hit knowing that they would rebound. I mean, so many companies did. I mean, what do you think will happen when you shut down the economy and, and open back up again with inflation going through the roof? I think it was a given. They knew they'd get that profit back. And I think taking a few billion off them, I, I don't think they would collapse or never invest in Britain again. Do you think nationalisation finally is the answer? I don't think it's the panacea that sometimes we present it as. I think actually we have to look at what makes sense, what ownership model makes sense. But in this case, look, it's clear we're in a crisis. It's clear there's a way to pay for it. It's clear there's a way for the British public to get through. Um, I don't think that, like, you know, sometimes we are tempted to give these 10-word answers, right, the simplistic one. I actually think you have to think about what is the right approach. At this point in time, this is the right approach to get us through.
Yeah, and I think I see this nationalisation uh, phrase, it just gets sprinkled around all the time because I think, I'm sure some people just think it sounds popular, but when you actually ask them, well, what is it you actually want to nationalise? What? The production of the oil and gas, the yeah. transportation, the storage, the supply to the home? People haven't really got a clue. They just want to say nationalise because they go, profit is bad, uh, business is greedy, this is all horrendous, nationalise. But, I mean, come on. I mean, you give me examples of where anything that's been nationalised has been effective and efficient. Uh, more effective and efficient than the private sector. I don't know, you tell me, maybe I'm completely wrong. Uh, right, going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to be giving some of your thoughts, and I've got lots of them. You are emailing in very quickly. Your fingers are typing fast tonight. I like it. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. We are with you all the way until 7 o'clock. That's another half an hour, you lucky, lucky people, you. Uh, keeping me company, Dominique Samuels and Jeevan. Uh, Sandra, we've just been talking about um, the energy situation. Where do you stand on it? Do you think the Labour uh, policy is the right one, Andrew says? Is our government really just going to stand there and do pretty much nothing about these greedy energy companies? Uh, he says more people people uh, are going to die from poor nutrition and hypothermia. Shame on all of them. Jim says, I applaud Starmer for his views on the energy prices. I'm getting tired of hearing from the Tories all about how we mustn't tax billionaire businesses too much because they won't invest. We don't need investment, he says. We need reductions in energy costs and now. Uh, mm. Al says, Nijek, short-term reactions have long-term repercussions. We must generate more power. James says, we should never have a price cap on energy. It's meant to be a free market. A... Do you have a limit to that, though? Are you, would you just keep paying and paying and paying? Uh, would you ever support any in intervention, James? You tell me. Uh, a lot of people are getting very, very, very frightened. I know, because some of you get in touch with me and tell me so. Um, it's not going to be great, is it, this winter, let's face it. But is Keir Starmer's plan the right one? That's what I've been asking you tonight. Get in touch, gbviews at gbnews.uk and let me know your thoughts. Now, can you believe this? I know we say time flies, don't we? But really, I cannot believe that it's a year ago today, but it is. Uh, what am I talking about? The Taliban, uh, when they took control of Afghanistan. This year, the UK is going to send £286 million in aid to Afghanistan, but the former head of the British Army, Lord Danner, is saying we should be giving more. Hmm. I mean, Dominic, we all remember the absolute carnage, the scenes there, don't we, in Afghanistan? Yeah. I can't believe it's a year ago, but let's not worry about that. Do you think we're doing enough to help, um, let's face it, a situation that we helped to create in Afghanistan? Should we be doing more? And is that more, more money, like what Lord Dannett is saying? To be honest, I think the talk of even more aid to other countries in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis just screams to me out of touch, um, if I'm being quite frank. The first priority should be British citizens here. Um, and I would understand if we weren't giving any money to Afghanistan at all, um, but this financial year we've committed about £280 million to Afghanistan. After the recent earthquake that we suffered, they suffered, um, we've sent £2.5 million, and many of that goes to NGOs, much of that money. Um, even in terms of America, we're not the only country that's responsible for sending aid there. Altogether, America have sent about 720 
million dollars to Afghanistan. Think about how much money that is. Not to mention, you know, the billions that we've sent to Ukraine collectively as um, the UK and the US. We're sending a lot of money out of the country. And yes, you can argue that there are some strategic benefits to that and humanitarian benefits to that. I completely agree. I think we should stick with what we've agreed to send to Afghanistan this financial year and focus on how we can make the lives of people at home easier first because it ain't no holiday or party here, let's just be honest. But when you see the imageries, uh, we've all been seeing them over this last day or so, you've got all of these tiny little babies, three to a little cot, you've got very sick children uh, not getting the care that uh, they need. Does that not kind of motivate you? And you look at that and you go, oh, God, no, OK, let's help more. Yeah, no, it's easy to want to help every single person that suffers um, in the world and, and children as well, those images are extremely harrowing, but, you know, there's children here that are living on the streets, there's children here that are being beaten, abused and tortured by their parents, there's children here that are starving. You may not see them, but they exist, and they should be our first priority, and I'll always um, stick to that. The charity begins at home. Yes, I think does. I can summarise there what Dominique's saying. Jeevan, where do you stand? Let's do both. Let's we've ensure got, that... Let's hang on, have every... you got a massive field with magic money trees and let's, parks this in This isn't a, a magic money tree situation. You know, for example, the universal credit, we could absolutely afford the uplift. We had an extra 20 billion than we were expecting at our last budget. We could have also increased universal credit in line with prices. We absolutely could feed people at home. That's not a decision this government has made. In terms of the 286 million, that is 0.01% of our economy. So what one hundredth of a penny out of every pound that we spend. It's certainly not a huge amount of money we're spending. We look at the portion of the UK economy and as you said, about 20 million people there facing starvation and hunger. We're looking at over 60% of the country facing hunger. Those people don't even have medicines to get through. Sometimes in life, you know, I think we'd all agree we try and ensure we live in a world where no one goes hungry. I agree that no one in this country go hungry, but also do what we can. Do you have any well. limits? Is it just like a bottomless pit? We just give, give, give? It's like, what's the, the level? It's not a bottomless pit, no. I think we should do more. I think How we should try more? and ensure. So we should actually get back to our least 0.7% of a, the GDP target and also channel it where we can. Now, So at you're this talking point about, time, just sorry, just in case people are not knowing what we're talking about, you're talking about foreign aid per se. Mm -hmm. It was 0.7, it got reduced to 0.5. That's what, when you're saying put it back up, you're saying foreign aid generally should be restored to the 0.7%. Not right Restore now. about the 0.7% target. And I'd say actually, yes, of course, in this situation, do send more humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. And when these people, when people abroad go hungry, when they become desperate, we'll see them turning to activities that do hit us at home. You know, instability abroad does fuel violence, it does fuel conflict. And as we've seen, that does spill over borders. It does cause huge issues for us as well. But aren't you a little bit worried? I mean, some of these countries, let's face it, the Taliban, they ran uh, they're run by the Taliban, who, uh, you know, they're, they're not the best... Uh, you know, you're not going to hold them up and say, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to have a, a collective running a country, I present you the Taliban. You're not going to put them on a pedestal as being the best, are you? So aren't you a bit worried? You're going to be giving all this money to very corrupt regimes. Uh, does that not worry you? Uh, so I think in this case, the humanitarian aid would be in the form of food and medicines. There'd be no question at all of sending cash abroad to the Taliban. Now, sometimes you do have, if you like, less worse options. It'd be great if there was a stable, functioning government that had the interests of its history at heart. I would love that to be the case. That isn't the case. Sometimes in life you have bad options and you have even worse options. The situation where actually, yes, you are sending that humanitarian aid is the least worst option we have. I accept the fact that, you know, the Taliban could use that in ways that wouldn't necessarily the way we would like. But I definitely don't want to see 
children die in hospitals from treatable diseases. I don't want to see them die from hunger either. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult place to be. And look, I worked in Somaliland for two years. Somalia, of course, next door, a country which is also does not have a functioning government. Again, we were stuck, well, they were stuck rather with very least worst options. It was very difficult. Yeah, Dominique? Uh... I mean, uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to help the rest of the world, but right now we're not in a position to. And it's not like we're the only country that's responsible um, for sending aid to Afghanistan. Many other... No, European but we're countries... one of the primary company, uh, co countries. Companies. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, companies. Yeah, I'm a UK PLC. <laughs> no, but we are one of the primary countries responsible for the situation, many would say, that's in Afghanistan. Okay. So you want to stick your nose into countries' when, business. When people say we... Who did you mean? And they're not talking about Joe down the street who works his I mean, works his backside Bottom. off to yes. uh, pr provide for his family. We're talking about politicians that like to meddle in the affairs of other countries in the name of freedom fighting. Yes, I accept that. We're not talking about the people that need to be prioritised here at home. So when we talk about collective responsibility, many people that are sat, are sat at home and are going to be thinking, what? I had no involvement in this. I, I didn't ask for you to go into those countries, so why do I have to pay the price? Yeah, and Jeevan, you're saying as well, in terms of uh, let's restore the spend, the, mm. the um, target to 0.7%, I think having a target uh, of what you were enshrined... This is enshrined in law, it's not like a best endeavours. Mm. Having a spend target enshrined in law is one of the most ridiculous things I think I can uh, even imagine this country having. I don't know why we've got it. I think that we should get rid of that enshrinement in law almost immediately. If I was Prime Minister, that's one of the things that I would do. Because if you give uh, people a spend target, you are literally saying to them, it is the law that you have to spend this money. People don't spend it effectively. They don't spend it efficiently. They don't pay attention to what I would call like a KPI, what impact are you actually having. They sit there and they go, oh, my God, Dawn in account sits there and goes, oh, the year ends almost up. I haven't spent this amount of money. Uh, uh, that's a project that'll do, yeah, it's five million there, two million there. It's just so you can tick a box and say, I hit my target. I find it preposterous. DFID has had a very rigorous impact evaluation for many, many years. In terms of the benefit that aid has done over the past kind of 15 to 20 years, hundreds of millions of children being vaccinated, millions more being educated across the globe. Now, those children who do well then grow up to be more kind of productive adults. They produce more for the global economy. And those things spill over to us as well. A I world in which is in investments in the future as well. A child today who doesn't catch a, a dangerous disease, who isn't suffering from starvation, learns more in school, in the future helps that nation develop, in the future somewhere for us to trade for yeah, as well. Yeah, we'll give aid. I've got no problem giving aid. What I'm pushing back against is the absolute absurdity of having the spend enshrined in law because that creates waste. It creates a ridiculous panic when you get to budget end to just throw this money out the door. So I'm not saying don't give aid. I'm just saying get rid of the enshrinement in law. Mm. Uh, sorry, Dominique, you want to... Yeah, no, I, I think in specific reference to Afghanistan, collectively a, a, as a global community, we, we've sent billions to this country without really much to show for it. Much of that money was swallowed up by the government that obviously eventually collapsed and was replaced um, by the Taliban. In reference to Afghanistan particularly, I'm not really seeing much good that the aid has actually done. So for people to then be screaming for more aid, especially in the middle of a cost of living crisis, doesn't really stack up to me.
I would say that I think actually, to be fair, aid is not this panacea that helps nations develop. It's not something like, for example, where you give a nation a set amount of money and then you say, hey, guess what development is now going to happen. That's certainly true. Like, it takes a lot more. It takes political stability in those nations. You have to be careful about who you're giving the money to, that you're not simply funding kind of political leaders who therefore don't have to tax their own population, aren't responsible or accountable to them. There is a distinction between that and also the humanitarian suffering we're seeing today. So I would say send that humanitarian aid, but also, yes, you do have to be careful about where aid goes. And I would agree uh, with you very much, Michelle, be absolutely very, very rigorous. Yeah, but, um, you know, when it comes to aid, I just think it gets uh, sprinkled around like confetti, almost to make ourselves feel better as a country. Uh, one of the things that I always say, and people will get very angry with me for daring to have the audacity to bring it up, uh, Ukraine. It's regarded on the uh, Transparency Index as the second most corrupt country in Europe. And we're sending billions upon billions upon billions uh, under the situation of it being a war. And I sit there and I think, is anyone actually doing any kind of audit uh, trail here to actually going. make sure that rather than just shoving billions of pounds over the fence, is anyone actually looking at where are we spending it? Is it effective? Is it efficient? Are there proper uh, audit trails on this money? Should we even be concerned about this? Because I've got to be honest, no one really seems to be. I am. But then I'll get shouted down by all of you guys at home. Hello there, uh, I'm Michelle Jubry. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. With me, uh, Michelle, I just told you my name, haven't I? And the clue is, of course, in the title of the show. Uh, Jeevan Sander, keeping me company, and Dominique Samuels, or Donna. Donna. As one of my viewers have just written in. That's uh, my favourite. Yeah, said that uh, they love Donna on the panel tonight. And I'm trying to work out who you mean. I think you mean Dominique. <laughs> uh, talking a lot of sense, someone else says that, Dominique, you should be PM. That's oh, wow. For you, yes. Any ambitions to go into politics? Maybe, yeah, but BPM sounds like the, the job from hell, to be honest. Everyone ends Maybe. up hating you. <laughs> Can you imagine? There you go. Dominique Samuels could well be a future PM. Stranger things have happened, haven't they? Indeed. <laughs> Even, yes. Uh, anyway, right, uh, Brian says, you've just been talking about Afghanistan. If you were there, you two ladies would not be on TV discussing this. Uh, I suspect uh. you're right there. Yes, this is a good point. Um, many people are saying, agreeing with you, Don Donna. I nearly called you Donna then as well. Are we drunk Do tonight? Do like a Donna? Me and my viewers. Uh, we might have been on the shandy, I think. Um, <laughs> but many people are agreeing with you, actually, with that sentiment, charity begins at home. Uh, that is coming through thick and fast on my email tonight, I've got to say. Uh, right then, let's talk about what's going on in the channel, shall we? I mean, come on now. We've been talking about this for weeks, months, months. I'm just going to be blunt about it. No-one's doing anything. I'm supposed to be reading out this nice professional intro to this story, but it's just getting ridiculous now, isn't it? This year, it's past 20,000 people. That is double the number at this time last year. I mean, Jeevan, what are we going to do? Do you agree that something has to be done? Yeah, I'd agree. I don't want to see people dying in the channel. I don't think anyone on this panel wants to see people dying in the channel. But we know why people are making this crossing, right? They're making this crossing because there are no safe and legal routes. You can't apply for asylum in this country from outside the United Kingdom. The only one scenario you can do is if you're a child across the border and you have parents here. If the flip side is the case, your child is there, but you're a parent on the other side, you can't make an application to cross. Those people in those boats, of course, many from Afghanistan. 
Islam. What we've seen is 70% of them, Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Syria and Yemen. 60% are successful when they land and more successful on appeal, so it's over 70%. We need safe and legal routes. This uh, plan has not worked. You need to have an asylum, asylum application processing centre in France. Assess who kind of does have a right of asylum in this country and do so. But until we get that, unfortunately, yes, this is going to continue. <clears throat> I think much of the reason, and there was a report um, done on this, much of the reason why also um, so many people are also um, accepted is because the data that they use to obviously fill out their application, much of it isn't actually independently reviewed and verified. In some cases, migrants that come over from the channel have to actually put in their details, things like where they've come from, their age, their name, themselves, None of that is verified because of the absolutely terrible infrastructure we have to deal with the scale of people that are actually coming. I would agree something needs to be done, but the idea that all of these people are coming from war-torn countries and they just need somewhere to, to live, um, I, I don't think really stacks up when you actually look at the people that are coming and some recent stats that have come out. Um, between June and July, nearly 40% of those that came from across the channel um, we're from Albania, for example, that we have noticed there have been an uptick in people from Albania, obviously taking advantage of the situation and the fact that, you know, it's basically a free-for-all here. There's not been a conflict in Albania for a quarter century, so clearly they're not fleeing war, they're not fleeing deprivation, these are economic migrants. In reference to the solution that's been proposed, Rwanda, um, I think, let's just be honest here, it's a failed policy. It's failed. Hardly anyone has been sent to Rwanda, if that. Rwanda came out a few months ago saying that they'll only be able to take about 200. It's a failed policy. And David Davis um, wrote a really interesting piece recently in The Telegraph um, about employing one of two methods that the Australians used, which, which was actually turning the boats back, employing some of the technology that the Europeans used to survey people coming in from North, Af North Africa to Europe, using that technology to notify the French if they don't do something about it, turn the boats back um, before it's too late, before they reach our shores. I think that is a solution that would actually stop the numbers of people coming, because let's not forget, you know, we spend about £4.7 million a day accommodating these migrants. Oh, I reckon it'll be a lot more than that. Because yeah, that a lot figure, more now. That figure was from much earlier on in the year. Uh, Jeevan, what do you think to some of what Dominique is saying? Well, look, the David Davis plan, I mean, I'm very sceptical of what David Davis has to say. I mean, David Davis has been <laughs> consistently wrong about so many things. You know, when he was saying, well, on Brexit, he said there'll be no downsides, only upsides. Of course, I think at least the queues at Dover would say there were definitely some downsides. But hang on, he said you're making it about him. Of so don't make, make, let's not make it about him. Let's make it about the premise of what he said, which, by the way, I think is a very sensible suggestion indeed. What he was basically saying is we'll take the second strand of the Operation Sovereign Borders in Australia and essentially will uh, use technology, as Dominic was saying, will alert the French, look, there's a boat about to leave your shores, give them the opportunity to do it, to stop it. If they don't do it, what we will do then is essentially uh, tow these boats back to France. 
What's wrong with that? I think it's a great idea. So why should it also be, for example, when it comes to refugee and asylum application, France already receives three times as many as we do. People who tend to cross into this country, and I do disagree with those statistics that I've said before, people who do cross tend to have family links here. You know, one Syrian man that plane to Rwanda, for example, had two sisters inside this country, and that's why he was trying to cross on a boat. The young woman who sadly died, of course, had a fiancé here as well. There has to be some kind of route, legal route. I'm not saying that they've got family here. If you've got 20,000 people coming this year alone, of course people are going to have family because last month another ex came, and last month another ex came. So at this rate, everyone's going to have family. But there's Surely. not, again, we are receiving far fewer asylum applications than France do. 86% of refugees stay in the neighbouring countries. They don't come all the way to the United Kingdom. It's not like we are not exactly a welcoming environment. We've already had the hostile environment. We've had the Windrush scandal. People don't come here because Britain is a soft touch. They come here because and they risk their lives to come here because the level, they have family, the because level they of have people, connections. The level of people that are coming here, arriving here, these are record numbers. These are numbers not seen mm. before. Bring up the statistic again about Albania. You can't say that part of why people are coming from Albania isn't because they're starting to see that it's really quite easy to get here. They're basically escorted into the country, allowed to put in all their own data. Some of the time, they're not even identified properly, with some of them actually absconding from the hotels in this country. We don't even know who they are. I think we are a bit of a soft touch now. I don't think we are a soft touch at all. I think we've seen that traditionally. And also, you know, home office tribunals, for example, I mean, first and foremost, if you could simply put in your own data and get kind of a pass, then it would be a 100% success rate, not a 60% success rate. More broadly as well, when you have a process and a system to assess asylum applications, or the same as I've seen as well, disability benefits, people often say, well, the result is wrong. But actually, that's the reason why you have a process to assess that particular application, whatever it is for. I think actually we have to do this, have to get a grip on it. But I think all of these solutions that we've seen so far, trying to turn back the boats at one point, pretty Patel said she'll push them back. Uh, these things have not worked. No, no, it's not, not, no, no, it's not been tried. It's They've not been tried. They've not tried pushbacks. All this talk about Rwanda, you say that the policies uh, failed. failed. But then, do you know what I would do? And I do accept uh, that it's a good job I'm not in charge, quite frankly. But do you know what I would do? I would stand up, I would say, guys, right, look, this has now reached the point of no return. This is ridiculous. You've now got, what, 20-odd thousand this year alone. It has to stop. I would say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see through my Rwanda plan and I would put people on a, on a plane and I would send them to Rwanda and I would say to the country, guys, I understand there's going to be uh, ramifications, etc., etc., but we have to try and do something. We have to try and do something to deter these crossings. Nothing's working. Nothing's been done. All of these courts and all of these lawyers, everyone's kind of getting involved and probably making a small fortune off the back of it as well, by the way. So somebody's just got to be bold, show some leadership, Except that there will be some consequences because if people really are like what you're saying, Jeevan, uh, desperate to stop people risking their lives, then I'm sorry, you've got to take action. And there might be consequences to that action and you'll have to face those. So I think even if you were to send the 200 abroad, I don't think it's going to stop people crossing the channel. And also, like, let's really? stand up for the rule of law and for courts as well. Like, there's a reason those laws protect everybody. Everybody has to abide by the rule, including the government. The government needs to ride roughshod. You know, what, part of what makes this country great is the fact that we have the rule of law, the fact that governments can't arbitrarily say what is and is not legal. You know, that's the kind of but place that you're at you crisis proud point of. now, aren't you? Because you cannot... It's not sustainable. It's, the infrastructure can't cope with it. You know, we're spending millions of pounds per day. It's not sustainable, so radical action 
needs to be a caring, surely. Well, our laws are manipulated. The, the system is gamed. A lot of the reason why people that are here illegally fail to be deported is because they gain, game the system. They use, for example, um, the UN Refugee Convention, um, the European Court of Human Rights, a lot of the conventions with that. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, these aren't integral and useful, but I'm saying that I do think with modern context, because the context of a lot of these laws um, were in reference to, for example, World War II, I think that it, it needs to be updated. Rishi Sunak said that he would um, change the definition of asylum seeker to sort of fit the trends that we're seeing at the moment. Do you think the system needs updating? But it's not just about turning back the boats, et cetera, et cetera. It's also about, you know, what we have on the ground at the moment. You know, our, our, our border force it isn't fit for purpose. The funding's been patchy. Staff don't really know what they're doing. Um, the whole thing just needs reform. Well, there you go. Uh, Ted has got the answer. Ted, he says, Michelle, if we really want to stop immigration, we just have to come out of the European Court of Human Rights. It is that simple. Hmm, well, there you go. That's Ted's views. Uh, David says, I want to know Labour's plans for boat crossings. Do they have one? Nope. Mm. I don't know. I don't think so. If they have, I haven't seen it. If you've seen it, let me know. That is all we have got time for. Uh, thank you very much for your company tonight and your, your thoughts on those topics, Jeevan, Dominique, Donna. Thank you very <laughs> much for your company. Have yourself a wonderful evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.